Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Robert Fiesler. Robert is the author of Tinderbox, which is one of our Stacks book club picks for the month of June. We'll talk to Robert today about the book and his process as a writer, but we'll not include any spoilers. Then you can turn in on June 5th for our full in-depth conversation about Tinderbox. If you want more of The Stacks, head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks to be part of our bookish community. Patreon allows listeners to help support the show while earning cool perks. One of my favorite perks is our virtual book club, where our Patreon community hops on a video call to discuss the past week's pick from the Stacks book club. It's always awesome and a great way to unpack the book. We have a bunch of other perks, so head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks to check them out. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts. Now it's time to meet Robert Fiesler. Robert is the author of Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation. Fiesler has been the recipient of the Edgar Award and the Lambda Literary Award for Tinderbox, and it's easy to see why. We talked today with Robert about how this story came into his life and how it's been received in the world, plus a lot more. There are no spoilers today, so enjoy. Right, everybody. I am here today with Robert Fiesler. He is the author of Tinderbox, which is a book club pick for us, which you'll hear in June. So before we dive into the book club, I wanted you guys to meet Robert and get a little sense of his book. So Robert, thank you for being here. Hey, happy to be here. We're so excited. Okay. So we always start with this question. It's really easy. You should have it queued up because your book has been in the world for a while. In about 30 seconds or less, can you tell us a little bit about Tinderbox? Yeah. Tinderbox is about a notoriously unsolved arson fire at a gay bar uh, that took place in 1970s New Orleans and claimed 32 lives. It was the deadliest fire on record in New Orleans history. And yet uh, it received just a few days of coverage in its day uh, due to rampant anti-gay bigotry. And despite a bounty of evidence pointing towards uh, the person who set this intentionally set blaze, a gentleman named Roger Dale Nunez, who is internally conflicted gay man, um, all that evidence was cast aside uh, in its time period due to uh, anti-gay political animus. And thus was this historic tragedy permitted to become what is what it is now, which is a historic mystery. It's an unsolved crime. So that's the book. Uh, it's about the upstairs lounge fire. It's called Tinderbox. You're so good. Okay. So tell me this, this 
fire was like pretty, not completely forgotten, but largely forgotten in the public. Um, how did it come to you? Sure. So um, I, w- I went to a journalism school in New York. City and the main professor there, or like the dean, uh, was a guy named Nicholas Lemon, and he liked to tell these wizened stories about when he was getting his stripes as a reporter, and when he and when he was a baby journalist, and he uh, he reported for an alt weekly publication uh, in the French Quarter of New Orleans called the Vieux Carré Courier, um, and he talked would talk about this uh, this newspaper with quite fondness. It sort of was a ultra liberal publication in the seventies. It sort of modeled itself off of kind of what the village voice was in mm-hmm. Greenwich village. Um, and his mentor was a then radical out gay man named Bill Rushton. So I was at one of these awkward, like wine and cheese things or whatever. <laughs> and, and trying to like make conversation with a professor, like a student's do is totally uncomfortable. And he dropped this, it was kind of like a, like this bomb of information on me. We were, talk- we were talking about something. He's like, that reminds me of this fire that happened on the fringe of the French Quarter in 1973, <laughs> killed 32 people. Nobody really spoke about it afterwards. And I was like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. It was like, that was my initiation to the event. And I had so many questions based on what he just said. And um, he couldn't really answer them in a fascinating way. He was like, I don't know why, but my grasp of facts is failing me here. And I generally, that's not the case with this guy. This okay. is a guy that remembers what he ate for mm-hmm. dinner in like 1984. So like, I... um. I, I went, to, I became obsessed. I flew down to New Orleans. I was then living in Brooklyn and Williamsburg, like a cliche hipster. I flew from New Orleans, uh, sorry, to Brooklyn and New Orleans. And I was staying um, with the only two people I knew in town in like this, um, on a day bed in a sunroom that would get really hot by like 9am. So I was out in town researching a lot. And I found some of the original articles that my professor from the journalism school, Nicholas Lemon, reported in 73 that summer. And it turns out he was in the summer in the quarter that time. And he was doing stories while the fire occurred. And some of his stories appeared side by side coverage of the upstairs lounge. Um, and yet when I was asking him more questions about it, he kept telling me, I don't understand why I don't remember this. It's too hazy. Um, and it, I began to understand that something really traumatic happened that's in that city, that this was a kind of a emergency event that sort of draped a veil of forgetfulness mm-hmm. um, and, and created a kind of forced amnesia in this city, which was um, is otherwise a storytelling city. This is a city where, like, if, if you came when I first came, everyone wants to know where you're from. Everyone wants to hear your stories about where you've been. And yet in, in that even in this culture, one story for years was off limits, the upstairs lounge story. So of course I was obsessed. Mm. It, it it hit all of my buttons as a journalist, as a reporter, um, and as a as a gay person. And because I've always wanted to report a story about when homosexuality was a secret subculture. And I'm beyond that. I'm obsessed with the notion of of the unsayable in our right. society and de- and denial as a human phenomenon. Um, and that this book and that subject deals with all of that material. Wow. Uh, so I, I think it was one of those things where you, I don't know, opportunity rings like def- definitively in, mm. in your life where you're just like, oh my gosh, like there was no choice not to write it as soon as I found out about it. That's so awesome. It's like you're calling or something. Do you feel like, so you've written this book, you, I'm obviously if you haven't read the book yet, it won't be obvious to you, but it's obvious to me as someone who's read the book, you did a ton of research, amazing research. Like it just, one of the things that sticks out about the book is how well reported it is. Like, I really felt Mm -hmm. like I trusted what you were saying because I was like, this guy has done the work. You know, sometimes you read nonfiction and it's like, 
where did you get that from? <laughs> like, what? Oh, I'm, I do know what you mean there. Yeah. yeah. And for your book, I was like, this has to be a fact because this guy has given me so many facts leading up to this. Like, I'm with him. But that being said, what has your response to this book been in the greater, you know, queer community, but also specifically in New Orleans? Oh, New Orleans has embraced this book in a way I never expected. I thought because like, and I live here now, like right. I moved down to New Orleans, which should be a signal about how welcome I was in town after the book came out. <laughs> yes. But so uh, I didn't know, New, it, New Orleans is an idiosyncratic culture. It's like a foreign country in U.S. soil. And I didn't know if as an outsider, a person who did not grow up here, how um, the city would respond to me talking about an event that didn't really cast historic New Orleans in, in the best light. Mm. And it turns out the city has gone through this tremendous uh, transformation in terms of its relation to its queer culture. I knew this a little bit, but I still couldn't sense about, well, then how is that going to affect? Because you can never guess how someone's going to respond to your book. But right. um, there is such a thirst for upstairs lounge history that my book was accepted with open arms. I have um, I have gone to and, uh, and like spoken at more packed events involving upstairs lunch history in New Orleans and any other city. I've sold more books for Tinderbox in New Orleans than any other place. Mm. Um, and and it's, it, it's continuing now where I, I consistently will meet people who were historical figures featured in my book. Um, who, and you never know how a source is going to respond right. when you report them who we end up hugging and gabbing like old girlfriends mm. oftentimes. So nor I mean, I, I feel like this, the city has been the kindest actually of all places uh, to the book. And I think um, most receptive because there's such a passion, I think now to own any sort of event uh, that occurred in this town because the city has such a pride um, in a strange sort of way for all of its grit. Mm. Um, and also for um, really the meta, uh, for, for its journey and for all the metamorphoses uh, that the city has gone through, not just with Katrina, but with all sorts of things. Right. Um, so yeah, New Orleans um, has been so generous. Um, you asked about the queer community um, and how they responded to it. It depends the answer to that. Um, so I've gotten um, most uh, queer readers um, will respond very emotionally to the book. And I'll get like, um, either people will approach me at book events crying and I'll have to hug, we'll hug it out. Mm. Um, it's just, a, it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly um, emotional thing to go through. Or um, I'll get really sweet emails where people want to tell me their stories about growing up in the closet, living double lives, et cetera, and how they were able to come to embrace their true selves. Always, I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking like, you should publish this. Why are you just emailing me this story? It's incredible. <laughs> there is a certain breed of, especially um, I've noticed because you, you, you see certain types of people coming right. with certain types of reactions to the book. Um, and I'm, I'm, and I'll just, I'll shoot straight with you about it. So like, um, there's a certain breed of queer studies scholar, mm -hmm. um, that I think, uh, wishes I had included more Foucault, um, like quoted more books like epistemology of the closet or things okay. like that, or gotten really into, um, academic nitty gritty, which I had in some portions of the larger manuscript, which was twice the size of the book I published. The, the original manuscript of Tinderbox, like my, my husband called um, Gay War and Peace or Gay Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Um, and 
I like I in that version there was a lot of the, there were a lot of interludes even more so the gyre spun so much more widely than it does in the book and I actually think it spins kind of widely at some parts of the book right yeah. now as it was published so and there's you reach a point eventually where you recognize um you know it's not going to be all things for all people uh and there are certain people who've spent their entire academic careers earning doctorates around the, you know uh the evolution of the word gay uh, for right. example, or that, or the notion of uh, sexual difference now vis-a-vis fairy culture in the early, you know, in the early 1900s, and that's not something that you know, in a book about a, a disaster in 1973, <laughs> New Orleans gay culture, I'm not, I'm going to be able to get to. Right. And so, usually, those are the th- sort of people that give it, um, not a, they won't pan it. Nobody pans it, but they'll give it like, uh, what, what, what will they say? Good job. Like that kind of thing, but they won't be like, this was the best book I've ever read. Right, right. Because they're they have they have their own agenda and things that they're coming to the book with. Yeah, and I tread into their terrain a little bit. And sure. there's a lot of inter when you're dealing with a, a, a topic as vitriolic as queer culture um and oppression in the past of queer culture, the two sides of the political coin will generally come at you with the most vitriol. Mm-hmm. So the radical religious right mm-hmm. um, is not a huge fan of the book, specifically because of its portrayal of gay Christians and gay Christianity in the early 1970s. And that offends their religious sensibilities. And so I'll get people emailing me with Bible quotes and things <laughs> like that. How nice. Um, I know, but that's sort of like... You know, they're reacting to you. Right. So in, in a sense, your book is a something they were forced to respond to. Right. Which means they, and a part of them uh, might eventually, even though they won't admit to me, a, a part of this group might eventually find sympathy right. for individuals who died, queer individuals who died in these events like this. Right. Um, and then, yeah, the other group is like uh, the, the queer left, the, mm-hmm. the radical left doesn't like that I they I talk about how uh, in the likeliest case the arsonist who set the upstairs lounge fire was an internally conflicted gay man mm-hmm. and how this was very likely gay on gay crime in a time where people were so isolated within personal and societal divisions of the closet that many queer folk um, couldn't relate to individuals even with whom they were they were physically intimate mm. they believed that theirs was an individual burden that whole get off me queer thing after sex, that sort of deal, which can, which is very violent. And so that gets a reaction too, but I'm grateful for all of them because I'd rather have people reacting and talking about the upstairs lounge fire than not paying attention. Right. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have 
considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I have a question about how you got your sources because you have so many people and a lot of them are firsthand, like folks who are at the lounge or on the street that night. Um, and so I'm just curious kind of how you came into them. Yeah. You mean like the first person interviews I did? Yeah, the first person interviews. But then also, if you wanted to talk just a little bit about the other kind of sources you use to round it out, I just, the research mm. was so good. I feel like you should like brag a little bit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So when I first went to New Orleans, I became like a library mole man, not getting enough sun. And I went to, and New Orleans keeps so much information in a lot of different places that I just kind of went, started ferreting things out in archives. Um, so you can go find the police report, for example, on the historic upstairs on fire and all of the and all of the coroner's uh, forensic reports. You can also find all of the historic news articles in another location. You can find the and I would and I'm weird, so I'll find like the notes of the reporters who mm -hmm. wrote the articles too. Mm -hmm. I wanted all that stuff, and you start to gather like this greedy leprechaun, this entire mound of information. Um, and from there, I started feeling like I had the confidence to. Start seeking out people who were historic figures, talked about, written about in these uh, in this paper trail, who uh, who I could now reach out to with a basis of information. Um, and so then I started. I mean, like I had a, a list of survivors of the fire, mm. um, and that usually in the police report it came with uh, an address, and an, usually it's a birth date. And if you have a person's first and last name and a birth date, you can find them. Yeah, you can go. Everyone's locatable. I don't mean to freak you out. Um, and so, so be so would begin. Oftentimes, um, the what could be like a, oftentimes a, a two to three year text and email uh, relationship leading to an interview. Um, uh -huh. In in a lot of cases, in some other cases, um, 
It would be, um, I, I, you would meet people like who were fixers inside New Orleans who were, um, mm -hmm. either C minus or D plus celebrities in the French quarter or in certain mm -hmm. neighborhoods. People who know everyone, like the people who know people. And I met a couple of different little, uh, guides and guardians who I would tell about the story who would then bring out their iPhones and be like, I know that guy. I know that guy who survived the fire. Here's his number. And that happened a lot of different times where it would be um, unexpected connections and just these random pieces of serendipity. And being open to that would lead to um, me meeting an upstairs lounge survivor or witness. In one case, it was my Uber driver back to the airport wow. who talked about how he had been in the, Mar the Marriott across the street. And that that wouldn't have happened had I not been speaking to him about my book and things like that. I guess I was just right. a talkative person. Yeah, that, just chatty. <laughs> I guess so. But eventually, so you, um, I would start to compile um, the uh, the interviews. The interviews would generally be about uh, 45 minutes in length okay. with a survivor or witness. And then I would do probably about 10 to 15 of them. And then from there, I would, uh, you look for a Venn diagram of information. So you look where what, where multiple people were talking about the same thing. And then a, a piece of primary source archival material matches with it, mm -hmm. where you can start to reliably say, yeah, I think that, that these three people, these three things agree that this happened in this place. Um, and so I could include that in a scene reconstruction. And that's what the kind of story, the narrative nonfiction storytelling I like. I like scene reconstructions where you feel like almost you're there in the place. So when you have that amount of material, those sort of overlaps begin to permit that, where you can take people almost cinematically through a progression of events. The scene that I'm thinking of, obviously, I think it's probably you got a lot of feedback on it, is the scene of the fire itself. Mm. And it, I mean, that was it's one of the most, I've never read anything like it where I was be, like, I, I just, it gave me all the feels. I can't even articulate it now months later, but it was really fantastic. That section. Like, oh, wow. Thank you. I mean, the whole book is great, but like that section sticks out to me as something unlike anything I've ever read. And I love a nonfiction, true crime, retelling, forgotten, like your book is right in my personal wheelhouse. So, oh, wow. so that was, I mean, really special that, that moment, those moments, it's like 30 pages maybe that are just like, yeah, it took me three months to write that part in the initial draft. Wow. It was awful. I was crying sure. a lot. Well, I felt um, sick to my stomach reading it. So I have to imagine it had to have been really challenging on you if you're yeah. spending three months with it. You know, I spent There's, maybe yeah. an hour. I do talk about this because uh, some people, will, authors will tell you, no, it was such an honor. Every mm. every moment of this. And it was, it was an honor to sure. tell her. But that go, forcing my brain back into that burning room with all the people dying was the most, I mean, a heart-wrenching thing to do every day. And I would like, I would, I threw up a couple times. Mm. It was really awful to do. I ended up writing in, in a library though, where I could bring my dog to work. So I'd mm. be like, I'd be typing, writing this awful thing. And then my dog would look up at me and wonder why, like, you know, <laughs> I'm so upset or I'm bawling my eyes out. And then we'd go for a walk. So I could have like at least moments and breaks away right. from that. And then I'd made friends with a couple other upstairs lounge scholars who knew about what it was like writing that scene. Um, one, a guy named Clayton Dellery, who wrote a great book on the upstairs lounge called Upstairs Lounge Arson. And I could call Clayton on my little walks with my dog through Boston Common. And I remember a couple of times just calling him and being like, it was so awful. It was awful what happened to these people. And I kept and I was debating about, is this sensationalistic to to continually portray 
in the grit and, and to zoom in on what exact precisely was happening. And I decided it was necessary because for years and years, all the voices echoing around this scene had said, what happened to these people didn't matter. Right. And I thought that it mattered tremendously. And so I wanted readers to, in the first, you know, half of the book, the, the, actually the book that the fire scene happens halfway through the book, just because of the way it's structured, people mm-hmm. think that they're actually not that far through it. And I wanted readers to fall in love in certain ways with certain characters that they meet and wondering at, as the scene is building up um, in that sort of suspens- suspension of disbelief way, well, who's going to live and who isn't through what's about to happen. I wanted these deaths to feel consequential right. because I, because they were, not just to the people who were immediately impacted, but these were men um, and, and 31 men and one woman whose, whose lives had real meaning and who were quite special inside the culture that they, that they lived and worked in. So I'm grateful to hear that, that you responded that way. I did. I don't, if, the, if, if that scene didn't work, a book about a fire is not going to work. The That's fire true. scene has to be the most compelling piece of writing. It also has to be the most exact reconstruction right. of what happens. Yeah. And it has to, it, I wanted the reader to sort of have to take breaks almost right. because it feel, because things are happening on a second by second basis that are um, irremediable, that can't, um, that can't be undone. And what was weird about writing that is it felt like I got to the fire scene and I didn't want to do it. Mm. I'd felt in love. I'd fallen in love with the characters, the historical figures, so much that I, I wish I could have let them out of that room. Right. I know. At reading it, I felt that way. I was like, maybe someone's going to open the door and they're going to be fine, and the fire truck will be here. Like, you know, you have that feeling of like, kind of like in Titanic, where you're like, maybe if Rose would just move over, like everyone could live. <laughs> I thought about that, and I'm like, that's a piece of that. W- that would be where fiction starts. I see yeah. now why people fictionalize events because they're like. What if I with if him did he did it have to happen to him so much? And it felt like I was doing it to them because I kept making those choices. I obviously I wasn't, I right. didn't, but because I didn't, I'm just re- recollecting and re- and rebuilding events as they did occur. Um, but it's a terrible thing to be that sieve or to be that medium where you, where mm. you're involved in doing this, and it's not joyful. Mm. Um, I don't know how it could be, but like uh, some aspects of writing are. There are some scenes that are beautiful to write I hear in a writer's history. Uh, but this was my first book. And this, this scene itself was um, something else. I had to go see a, uh, I had to go see a grief counselor afterwards. Wow. That happens a lot in these, like writing these kinds of books. Do you hear that? Or that's kind of a question and an answer. Sometimes. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm a journalistic background though. So like I would speak to muscled up war zone reporters, mm, you know, right. you could picture the kind of white bro I'm talking about mm-hmm. that goes to Syria. And I would ask about, um, I, how you deal with that. And I would get these answers that were real tough guy stuff. Um, so I didn't know him for a little while until eventually that, that there's such a thing as ancillary trauma or secondhand trauma. You know, you have to take time to work through it or there's consequences. Right. Yeah. That's, a, I mean, that's really difficult stuff. I do kind of want to talk about you and the actual writing of the book. This is always some of my favorite questions. So you okay. mentioned that you wrote it, well, wrote some of the book um, in a library in Boston with your dog. Yeah. What mm-hmm. was your, did you, I know you went to journalism school. I know that you had careers before you wrote this book. Um, you worked mm-hmm. in advertising and that sort of stuff. So how did you 
how do you work? Where do you work? Do you have to be in a quiet space? Do you have to be in your home, out of your home? Like, what's your writing setup? Oh, you want to know like what my writing bugaboos are and what my ideal writing creative yeah. space is? Yeah, and if you, you eat wanna... any snacks or drink any beverages during that, I really like to talk about food and drinks if that's okay. on your table <laughs> or if you like yeah. candles. I'll tell you. Yeah, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, okay, so most people don't want to know about this, but so I, I'd wanted since I was five years old to write a book. And I was mm. like, I had to wait till I was like 33 before like someone had this opportunity for me where I, I took a book to contract and finally the world was like, okay, you can do it. And then right. I was like, shit. Like, <laughs> I didn't know. I thought I'd make, you know, I thought at some point someone was, was going to turn to me and go, where are your parents? Go ahead, <laughs> get out of here. You can't go. I'm going to go find a real writer to write this book. And then, no, I like it went to contract. And then finally it just dawned on me. I've got to write this thing that I pr- told everyone I could do. Uh, so I, I was like, well, I'll write in the morning. Writers write in the morning. Some people write at the crack of dawn. I hated writing at the crack of dawn. Mm. I'm not a farmer. I didn't grow up in that environment. I can't do that. I'm not a morning person. And I was like, some writers write at night. They're like drinking their absinthe and they're like sipping it. And they're like so romantic about it. I'm going to write late at night. And then that would blow everything out of the water for me. I could not write late at night. So I figured out like what my ideal creative space, my golden zone, I called it was 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pure creative writing. And I would write through lunch. Mm-hmm. I would have to figure out. So I would have to figure out some way to just like throw calories in my mouth for a span of five minutes during a break or so. Um, I figured out that I couldn't write in coffee shops okay. because it's too loud. And the music is oftentimes too good. Like I'm a, I'm a gay boy. I'll like almost want to dance to it. And then I would be writing stuff and I'd be like, I'm writing up the, I, a sentence I wrote, like was almost a rhyme of a song that I just heard. I'm too influenced by that stuff. Um, and I also realized I couldn't write in silence either. Like um, cabin fever, I tried writing in my own apartment. Like cabin fever is real. If you're in, if you're inside all day long, oh my god, it's it's just it's not a good idea. It's almost like you're putting yourself in a prison. So I defined out a, a space like that I could use use utilize as an office that would have an, just enough noise, but not too much noise mm-hmm. that I could work from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. in, and I could work through lunch where I could probably also bring my dog and have coffee. It was very important. So I would have coffee or green tea. And then I would go in the middle of that at some point, I would take a 10 minute break and go for a walk in the afternoon to get an espresso shot with one of those, we're at a nice place that would also give you that, what's called those, those glass Gibraltar cups that they would put the sparkling water oh, in yes, beside yes, yes. that. Um, and I like that. So that would be like my little treat where I would amp up after like, so I would essentially what I would in, in start, you can let me know when I'm too detailed, but no, I would start it. writing. All right. Um, usually the last section that I'd stopped writing at where I do a little bit of editing and then I start okay. plowing forward um, into the writing. And I had a word count goal every day of 1200 to 1500 words. Okay. And if I hit 1500 words, that's about, that's a couple pages, like five or six pages, maybe if I hit 1500 words, I'd stop. I, at one point, I was having this amazing day where the clouds of my mind parted and I was like 3,000 words. And I was like, yeah, I was rocking it out and I hit a wall and then I couldn't write again for like at that level. I couldn't even get 200 words out like the next three days. It was mm. so frustrating, even though I would go back and fight for it. So I right. realized that like you can steal the energy of the next day today if you don't allow yourself, right, to stop right. To at a certain huh. point and, and treat yourself like an animal or a, that needs to be mended you, and, and, and like also be kind to yourself 
So um, I would try to hit 1,500 words a day each day. And it's like three days of that, then I have momentum. And then I can continue doing that for right. as, as long a span of time as I want. And I would take no days off. Taking a day off, like my husband so wanted me to take days off. And taking a day <laughs> off, I would like screw up the momentum of it. I would right. lose track of what I was doing. And then uh, I wouldn't be finishing chapters and then fit, take each chapter. And that creates like, you know, an act, a group of chapters as an act of the book. There's three acts mm. in my book. And then you finish all three acts and you're done. You have, you've written a book. Yay. <laughs> but I think authors that discover ways to find their momentum finish books. Um, and right. if you can't find momentum, I don't think you're going to outfinish a lot of, even authors that have like, that have completed other books, but can't find momentum on the book they're working on. I see. Odds are it won't be able to finish it. Interesting. What sort of stuff were you personally, not necessarily related to the book, reading or writing or reading or listening to while you are watching while you were writing the book? If it is related, yeah. that's fine too, but it doesn't have to be like research. It's totally unrelated. So I'll tell right. you, I couldn't read any serious nonfiction because that was all that all felt like part of my job. Right. So I was reading Ursula K. Le Guin passed away in the middle of, of, and what happens with me is I'll read the obituary of an author and I'll think I need to read that person. That's how I'll discover authors. I'll right. read people that are dead you know, or just died usually. Um, and I, so I read um, almost all of her entire collected works. Hmm. So I read like children of earth sea. I read um, her, it's like the, the Hainish cycle every a left hand of darkness. The, the word for world is forest. Um, the dispossessed, she wrote this beautiful series of short stories um, about a called the Orsinia Tales, which is about this made up um, East Bloc communist nation um, and sort of the history. And there are these gorgeous, like makes you weep love tales of people falling in love in a society that's like a prison. Hmm. And it was lovely. To, and so I would read that kind of stuff. And I would also read very serious, very nerdy, speculative fiction and science fiction. Um, and that would be a good distraction for me, but also applicable oftentimes because great sci-fi authors and great speculative writers are great weavers of material. Sure. They're great world builders. And in my book, I felt like I was utilizing setting as character. I was, I was almost New Orleans as maybe probably one of the biggest characters in the book. Right. Um, and so I was learning from the, I felt like these authors who really knew how to create worlds and utilize setting well, um, how they did that. I think Ursula K. Le Guin probably does it better than anyone else, actually. So that's the kind of stuff I was digging into. That's awesome. I love that. You're actually the second person um, who we've had on the short stacks who said Ursula K. Le Guin, they were reading while, uh, while they were writing their book. Did the book ever have any other titles? It had a different subtitle. Mm. Um, what was the book? Well, actually, no, and it had a different title when I pitched it. It wasn't good. Um, <laughs> what was it? I think I pitched it and it went to it went to contract as like Brotherhood of Man or something like that where I'm just like, man, I had a real tin ear. Yeah. What is that? It says nothing about the fire. And I think like the subtitle at one point was like the terrible tragedy that awakened a nation to queer something or something like that. And my editor was like, Bobby, he sounds like this when he talks, Bobby. Like it doesn't say anything about the the upstairs lounge fire. And I was like, uh, all right. And so I like, I tooled with it for months until it didn't work. And eventually he had, to, he wrote the subtitle. He did like a analysis too of all the other upstairs lounge works. And then he did, and then he sort of dug through all the stuff that he felt that I found that was new. 
And he was like, we're going to really own this Bobby. And I was like, oh my God, you're going to cause me so much trouble. My editor's <laughs> name is Bob. I was like, you're going to cause me so much. But he like, so he went with it. But so Tinderbox was my creation. And then the subtitle ended up being, I don't know if it was him and him and a team of people that sort of wrangled it away from me because I just couldn't get it right in their opinion. Right. But some of that is also being a first time author, I'm sure. told. But I, I ultimately I like I like both. I think it's I think what we've come up with this fine. I wish it was a I don't know, maybe a shorter subtitle, but I've noticed in fiction history books oftentimes the subtitle is so, so long. long. It's, it's like a chapter in its own right. <laughs> Okay, I have just one more question for you, which is for people who liked your book, can you think of any books that you might recommend to them? Maybe not necessarily the same topic, but in the same vein, or you feel like your book maybe is in conversation with or something like that? Yeah, certainly. Um, there's a book called The Gay Revolution by Ms. Lillian. I believe it's Faderman is how you pronounce her last name. Okay. I highly recommend that book. Um, there was an, an additional, so that, that's a good overview of the sort of rise of the queer movement politically and okay. its successes, its unprecedented successes in the course of American history. I think that that's a highly relevant book. And I think I, I recommend it. Actually, there's there's some books that I didn't enjoy reading, but I had to okay. like, for background. This one I enjoyed. Okay. Um, there is a book that came out called The Boys of Fairy Town. Okay. Um, which was by a guy named Elledge, I believe. It's he got nominated for the Lambda Literary Award this year, and it's about queer fairy culture in um, early nineteen hundred, essentially nineteen hundred Chicago. And I thought it, I, it's, I, I think it's quite magnificent the way he reconstructs a lost society, and I love that. Mm. Um, and then same, actually, same, same thought. I don't know if you know about fairy culture at all and how it how it deals, but it's a, a little bit different. Um, than our definitions of homosexual, heterosexual, et cetera. It's its own little kind of universe that people forget about. But George Chauncey wrote a really book called, a great book called Gay New York, which about was really the first exploration of queer fairy culture. And it was in New York City. And his book reads like, oh my gosh, a cup of, <laughs> a cup of Earl Grey and some dark chocolates. Earl Grey's like queer, my fave. <laughs> if you like queer history, I mean, and you like it written elegantly, okay. oh my gosh, Mr. Chauncey, it'll, it, it's just going to be, um, he takes the cake. I essentially. love that. I yeah. love that. That's so wonderful. Well, yep. so we're going to be talking about your book on the show in a few weeks. Um, but thank you so much for writing this book. And thank you for making time to talk with us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. And we will see you guys in the stacks. Thank you for listening to The Short Stacks. And thank you to our guest, Robert Fiesler. Get your copy of Tinderbox wherever you get your books. And remember to tune in to the Stacks Book Club conversation about Tinderbox on Wednesday, June 5th. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website at thestackspodcast.com. To help support The Stacks and earn awesome perks, go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This episode of The Short Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 